There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm a little out of my comfort zone uh, today. I'm delving back into the murky depths that is the early 19th century. And because I'm going there, I'm not going alone. So I've dragged Sam along with me. Evening, Sam. How are you? Hello! A Napoleonic episode. At last! You've let out your token Bonapartist from her tiny cell. I'm so grateful. You're going back in an hour. (laughs) God damn it. Luke, talk a lot. (laughs) I will do my very best to prevent you from being shipped back to St. Helena. (laughs) (laughs) So, um... Well, we've got we've got Luke here, but who who are we interviewing? What 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 exactly are you dragging me to? I mean, are we talking about today? So today we have Luke Reynolds. He's a PhD graduate and assistant professor in residence at the University of Connecticut, and he's here to talk about his first book, Who Owned Waterloo: Battle, Memory, and Myth in British History, eighteen fifteen to eighteen fifty two. Luke, hello, welcome. How are you? I'm well, Sam and Chris. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, yeah, I'm I, Chris. I apologize. You know, I, I know you're more comfortable in sort of the the later period, but um, hopefully this will be it'll be an aberration. It'll just be an hour, and then you can go back to uh, to sources that were typed rather than handwritten in beautiful copper plate. Shall we put uh, Chris I, I, I out of his? Shall we put Chris out of his misery before we start? Will or will there not be any boats? Ooh, uh, only only an occasional side mention, uh, probably. I am, this is largely, I mean, Waterloo is unfortunately a land battle, um, but, uh, you know, we, we'll do our best to, to try and sneak a little bit of a naval aspect in there. Sorry, Chris. That's all right. I mean, I normally do up to 1783 and then nothing happens until 1914, so yeah, I, I, could, I can go with that. <laughs> We should really start. And this is some. This is a question I keep. I keep asking myself uh, every time I glance at Napoleonic Twitter. Why is Waterloo so important? I mean, there were surely the bigger and better battles in in during the period. And is it just because the British won? I mean, that is that is absolutely part of it. I I mean, part part of it is that you are you are inherently interacting with English language Twitter. So the the British perspective is always going to to be there. Um, and, you know, yes, the British, well, the Allies won, but the British did a very good job of, uh, summarily erasing the Prussian, Belgian, and Dutch, uh, sort of contributions to Waterloo. Uh, Waterloo is incredibly important to the British psyche for, uh, really fundamentally two reasons. And one of those does expand outwards. Uh, the, the more sort of cultural aspect of this is that, uh, as human beings, we love a grand finale. 
we love a big showstopper at the end, and Waterloo is kind of perfect for that, right? It's not extended, it's not overly uh, complicated. It is four battles in three days, but Waterloo is sort of the grand climax of that. And it is three of the great captains of the age meeting in a relatively tight field with a decisive result. It's not, there's no question about who won or who lost. So that's part of why there's an appeal in general. But for the British, it is, yeah, it, it, it is, it, it allows them to take a place, uh, a stronger place at the, at, at the Congress of Paris, which replaces the Congress of Vienna after Waterloo to push their own feelings. And crucially, it allows them to get the bad taste of New Orleans out of their mouth. Because New Orleans is the, the, the last British battle, major British battle, before Waterloo. And I don't know if you know your, your War of 1812 history, but New Orleans doesn't go very well for the British. So uh, this allows them to sort of uh, push that to the side and not worry about it. Um, and honestly, the other thing that makes it uh, so significant uh, arguably not in terms of sort of uh, unbiased history, but in terms of cultural stuff, is that there's nothing after it. There's nothing after it until arguably Navarino or even the Crimea. So Waterloo has time to seep and steep in a way that, for example, Austerlitz does not, because immediately after, well, not immediately, but shortly after Austerlitz, we get Jena, or Leipzig does not, because shortly after Leipzig, we get, of course, Napoleon's first abdication, apologies, Sam. So. There's not battle after battle replacing it. It has time to settle and air and uh, do everything that it needs to do. Sometimes, sometimes at night, I just dream that he won. But in this reality that he didn't, this harsh reality we all live in, what were the first steps to commemorating my poor hero's defeat? I mean, this is the thing, you know, you're touching on something that is that is actually really genuinely worth talking about, Sam, which is, um, and I've had this raised to me constant times, uh, constantly at, at conferences and the like, mostly by by fellow Napoleonicists alongside you, Sam. Um, if you go to Waterloo, you don't see busts of Blucher, you don't see busts of Wellington, you see busts of Napoleon. Napoleon is identified with that battle uh, more than more than any of the other generals. I'm not saying more than the other battle he fought in. Um, so he does become sort of this crucial part of, of the mythos. In terms of the first steps, uh, what starts, you know, it really, it, it builds off of, uh, letters and, and sort of narratives from the battlefield. So we get, uh, things like what, uh, Wellington's dispatch, eventually Blucher's dispatch. We get the official French report. We get letters from soldiers, uh, many of whom are very conscious that their letters will probably end up in local newspapers. So they're pushing their regiments. They're pushing their side of things. Uh, and then slowly we start to get uh, civilian written histories that evolve out of this, often using these as sources. And really fundamentally, really from the start, pushing that narrative that this is a British victory, not an allied one. Right. The, the, the Prussians start to get slowly pushed to the side. The Belgians and the Dutch um, are dismissed almost immediately as useless cowards. And that is a narrative that persists uh, fundamentally, really in parts, until the 20th century. And it drives from that. So it starts off with a very military-focused uh, commemoration, right? We, the first things we see uh, in terms of sort of home celebrations. Uh, well, the first things we see in terms of home celebrations are actually spontaneous parties when the news breaks a couple of days after Waterloo. And those are very much civilian events. But once that ends, it's, you know, soldiers coming home. There's sort of... Uh, 
celebrations there. But the military, as we'll see, doesn't maintain hold of Waterloo in the way that it you think it might. We um we also get quite a lot of battlefield tourism. Well, I'm, not, I'm not talking about the looters who turned up that night, but like we get a lot of people going out to Waterloo Field fairly quickly, don't we? You do, and and actually, you know, the that night is is not that far off. Um, the first tourists show up the day after the battlefield battle. They show up on the battlefield. They've come from uh, Brussels which had been, which was at that point and continued to be a sort of one of the uh, British lures in continental Europe. Um, it was a relatively industrialized city and especially post-Belgian Revolution. Uh, it had a constitutional monarchy. And so Britain sort of thought of it as sort of a little Britain on the continent. And if you went to Belgium, you went to Waterloo. So really from the first day, from the day after uh, the, the battle is won, when there are still wounded lying on the battle, when there's battlefield, when there are still countless dead, people start showing up to sort of look at this battlefield and, you know, wander around, usually with a handkerchief pressed to their nose. Um, they go explore Hugomont, which would have been a god-awful site at that time, full of dead and dying. Um and yeah, it becomes this sort of standard and it becomes a standard way to do Waterloo. You know, you come from you come from Brussels, you go down into the village, you visit the church, uh, you visit the house where Wellington wrote his dispatch, the uh, the garden where the Marquis of Anglesey's or Uxbridge's leg is buried after it was amputated. And then you go to the battlefield and you you do the Allied Ridge until the Allied Ridge is sort of ruined by the, the creation of the Lion Mound. You do the Lion Mound once that's been done. You do Hugomont La Haye Saint, and you usually end up in La Belle Alliance uh, before you either spend the night somewhere there or return to Brussels for uh, dinner. It actually becomes so common that uh, William Makepeace Thackeray uh, has a whole bit in his um, uh, roadside sketches about uh, what a wonderful thing it would be to go to Belgium, to go to Brussels and not see Waterloo. Um, sort of, you know, he's, 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 he just decides to do this just to shock everybody. But even he, uh, falls akin, to, falls foul of it, and he actually does go and is slightly horrified by how patriotic he feels on that site. You know, talking about how, uh, let an Englishman walk that field and they never forget it. And again, this is something where the British start to dominate, right? Yes, there are Prussian tourists, there are Belgian tourists, there are, uh, Nether uh Dutch tourists. There are, by the, by the 1840s onwards, a lot of American tourists, and of course, uh, French tourists as well. But the British tend to, uh, look at it as sort of a, a mini part of England on the continent, right? It is, it's their ground, their blood was spilled. We'll ignore the fact of the amount of Prussian and French and Dutch and Belgian blood that was spilled. And Brunswick and Hanoverians, there are others as well. Um, it is it is British uh, land, and uh, and it is it is theirs to celebrate and commemorate and own. Which is actually one of the reasons why, when the Dutch build the Lion Mound, uh, in theory to honor Waterloo and mostly the 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 wounding of the uh, the Prince of Orange, uh, it gets uh, a lot of uh, British people very very angry. Because it's sort of they they build the lion mound with with the with the land with the earth itself from the Allied Ridge, and it, there's a lot of narr narration about how sort of you know they're they're lowering Wellington's Ridge to raise Orange's pyr pyramid, and go back and forth on that. So yeah, there's absolutely a massive amount of battlefield tourism that comes from the start. It's reinforced by guidebooks. It's reinforced by um, letters 
by um, epic poems in the form of, you know, Byron's uh, Child Harold's Pilgrimage, by Scott, both in his um, epic poem, The Battle of Waterloo or The Field of Waterloo, which does not do very well at all, uh, but also his um, uh, letters to his kinfolk, which was anonymously written, which is a, ch a travelogue, which does much, much better. And that sort of becomes the standard. But Southie goes, most of the poets go. Uh, and that sort of reinforces the popularity. It's, you know, it's it's the same as seeing a tourist, uh, a celebrity do a touristy thing these days. It shows up on Instagram and suddenly <clears throat> the numbers of visitors go through the roof. It's kind of similar to what's happening on sort of the Western Front and the Somme with uh, British tourists today, or even D-Day for American tourists. It's like, this is the part of, this is what they did. This is, like you said, this is our land. This is where we bled, etc. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I I think also the the another, another really good um comparison in that same vein is uh Vimy Ridge for the Canadians, right? That place where they are the first they sort of their first Canadian effort uh as a solo Canadian effort and it becomes part of their identity to the point where if you if you um there was a there was a study a couple of years ago that sort of talked about crucial moments in Canadian history and Vimy Ridge was in the top 5 even though it's, uh, you know, several thousand miles away. So you've shown how the Battle of Waterloo, right from the start, was quite cemented in the hearts of, of certain nations. Was there, um, was there a series of remembrance events and celebrations? And, and were they quite national? Yeah, so this is really at the heart of, of my book, and it is the, the driving thing of who owned Waterloo, right? I mean, if, if, you, if you open... Uh, my book with no knowledge of it, you're, you're probably going to assume that I'm talking about this from a national point of view. Is it the, is it the Dutch? Is it the Belgians? Is it the British? Is it the Prussians? And I've, uh, I've fallen afoul of at least one academic who assumed it was going to be the international approach and wasn't. But really what I'm talking about is who owns it in the British context. And that's where this nationalization really comes into its own. It starts fundamentally as, uh, right, right in the immediate moment, a civilian thing. But then becomes uh, a military thing, right? It's about military parades. It's about uh, military um, events. One of the one of the hallmarks of this in from the eighteen twenties on is uh, the Duke of Wellington's annual banquet, right? The Waterloo Banquet, which is held every year in um, Apsley House, and except for one year where it's actually held in Ten Downing Street when he's Prime Minister, uh, and it's a banquet of veterans, right? That is what it is, and it is. Uh, you know, in theory, there's a there's a potential guest list of uh, just under 2000 people, 1770, which are officers that survived the battle. In reality, we've got about 250 that are uh, or about 200 that are invited at any, at any one point or another. Um, and that becomes sort of the center of, of military uh, commemoration. But the fascinating thing is watching that get nationalized, because this fundamentally goes from being a British military victory to a British national victory. It becomes part of the, the creation myth of the, the 19th century version of Great Britain, right? Including all, including Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and England. And it is fundamentally serving a, a role, as Linda Colley has argued, in bringing all of those together to form Britain in a different way. And that nationalization starts to take over, right? As as it goes, those banquets become more and more reported on in the press as a national curiosity, as a thing of national interest. Um, we see more and more commemoration 
that has less and less to do with the military. The centers for uh, commemoration in London become Apsley House, yes, although surrounded by civilians, and Vauxhall Gardens, which throws a massive fete every year with fireworks and illuminations and all of that, that often has no military presence whatsoever. And as it goes, it moves away from the military. The military still commemorates, but it does so in private, especially after a couple of run-ins with the law because of too much drinking going on on the 18th of June. And it's the civilians that start to party uh, in public. There's a um, there's a there's a report uh, in the in the Times at one point of a of a grand military fete in one of the um, the theaters royal that uh, the Times comments on. There's not a uniform in sight here. This is entirely a civilian thing. It's only military in the fact that there are no military men present whatsoever. So this creeping nationalization starts uh, pretty quickly afterwards and moves on to the point where by the 1840s. You have Waterloo Day, the 18th of June, taking on the appearance of almost a saint's day. It's a day that is a holiday. It's a day that things are done on, a day that you have days off for. But people start to forget or not honor um, why, right? So uh, the, the, the best example I've ever come across is things like Memorial Day, Labor Day, and Labor Day in the United States, right? These are days that, in theory, they're national holidays that, in theory, have a meaning behind them. But for 75% of the people, they are simply days off. They are days to see family. They are days to celebrate. Not so much uh, the, the, the con contributions of labor unions and our military, but just uh, family and general life, if that makes sense. Yeah, I suppose in the uh, the grueling amount of work you had to do in the 19th century and Victorian period, getting a day off work <laughs> it rapidly becomes, a, that's cool, I'm going to go up and do what I actually want to do, rather than uh, down the mines or in the work, in the factories. Yeah, we, but, have, um, we have like, we have, uh, there's there's Waterloo cattle fairs uh, <laughs> that, as far as I'm aware, have no connection whatsoever to the battle, um, not even like a, a veteran's discount, but are regular <laughs> June 18th events. They don't stick a bicorn hat on the cattle then. We can only assume, right? You know, we can we can only assume that sort of thing. And you know, I think there's I think there's a little bit of of, of grand sort of national pride uh, going on, but it becomes more and more national and less and less military as it goes. Um, this commemoration slowly moves into mu into museums, doesn't it? It does. It does. Although I have enough friends in um, in curation, including Sam, uh, to to be very careful about the phrase museums in this period. Uh, you know, sort of the the phrase I use in my in my um, in my book is exhibitions, uh, because there is that question of when do you know when does curation as we as we understand it as a modern thing begin? Um, but yeah, no, it absolutely does. We get things like. Um, you know, there there are giant Waterloo panoramas that take over the uh, the panorama in Leicester Square and a few other rival ones. Uh, we have uh, the display of um, well of Napoleon's captured carriage at uh, the London Museum, what becomes the Egyptian Rooms, the Egyptian Hall, and then that makes its way to Madame Tussauds, which becomes a, another big part of this, right? The sort of the um, the Golden Shrine of Napoleon. And that's when we begin to see some of these sort of some of the more uh, what we would re we recognize as sort of modern museum things, right? Relics, 
bits of personal ephemera uh, and things like that that become hugely popular. Uh, but these things these things make fortunes for people. Uh, the owners of you know William Bullock, who who creates the London Museum, uh, and the owners of uh, the uh, the Panorama both uh, retire relatively soon after their very successful Waterloo exhibitions. And it is generally considered in the press that they do so, at least in part, because of the vast amounts of money they make from these exhibitions. They are hugely popular. Everyone sees them to the point where uh, one old veteran, not of the military, but of the panorama business, uh, looking back in the, the mid-19th century, basically says, look, the only panorama we ever did that appealed to absolutely every sector of society was the Battle of Waterloo one, right? That's the one that everyone sees. It has several revivals um, and goes from there. What's fascinating about those is, is that they, they bring in another aspect of, mili- of the military again, which is um, legitimacy, right? It's, it is up to the military. What the military does, and especially the officers, they reforge themselves as the arbiters of legitimacy, as you know, their their presence there says, no, this is what was, this is real, this is accurate, this is how it happened. And the best example of that is you take, you know, you've got William Bullock's museum, you've got the panoramas, but on the other side, you have William Cyborn's model of the battle. Now you can, this is, ironically is the one fundamentally that survives all of this, right? The panoramas uh, collapse due to rot; they're massive pieces. Uh, Napoleon's carriages, unfortunately, uh, burn when Madame Tussauds burns in the early 20th century. But uh, but the um, Cyborn's model survives, and you can see it today at the National Army Museum. But at the time, it was a massive failure because he had the temerity to include the Prussians in his model. He said it around 7 p.m. at the height of the battle, and the Prussians are there. And so the British officer corps, almost as one, uh, went up in arms, basically saying you are giving a power uh, equal share in the glory that did not uh, undergo equal share in the in the in the in the trauma in the in the work. Um, and there he's boycotted, most notably by Wellington. And the result is that his model becomes a financial millstone around his neck. He dies in poverty because. They're saying you're not accurate, whereas Bullock and the owners of the panoramas, several panoramas, Messrs. Marshalls are one of them, uh, go on to great success because their mo- their their depictions are deemed accurate. Wow! And as you say, Sideburn's model is the one that's uh, the one that survives for us all to see today, and it is. It, on a little side note, it is a very interesting example of how. Just because something in history has been there for a very long time as the established narrative, it doesn't mean that it's the actual true narrative. But that's a story for another day. <laughs> that's, 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 one, podcast. that's one that you and I could just talk for hours about. <laughs> the um, The impression that I'm getting so far from what you're seeing is that the the British public are quite enraptured with Waterloo. How How true is this? Uh, very much so. Uh, very, very much so. It becomes, uh, you know, sort of an obsession. Uh, there are, okay, any anyone who is a, is a, is even remotely interested in the history of the Napoleonic Wars would be completely unshocked when I say that there are countless books written about it. But there are countless books written about it at that point as well, right? Um, going back and forth, talking, uh, taking sides, pushing one side or the other. 
all of these exhibitions. There is, uh, you know, there are um, performances, right? One of the one of the most successful is a, is an 1824 hippodrama that I'm actually currently writing a source book on about the Battle of Waterloo. It's J.H. Amherst's uh, hippodrama of the Battle of Waterloo um, that becomes this massive smash hit that runs the full uh, London theatrical season, summer season. So 144 consecutive nights, which in 1824 London uh, was a remarkable achievement um, and is revived year after year after year. Vauxhall's Fet does the same thing and all of these exhibitions. Uh, London, to a certain extent, goes Waterloo mad. Uh, there's actually a, um, there's a, there's a, a, a source. It's, it is a novel. It's a parody of a soldier's memoir that is in fact fictionalized and written by a civilian, uh, but that a lot of, uh, historical sources quote as an actual memoir, one of my little, um, bet noirs, um, that talks about how London is utterly sick of Waterloo. But there is no indication of this. Uh, everything, you know, there's more and more successes and it goes into regular ephemera. We get, uh, you know, Waterloo blue as a color for ladies' dresses and pelisses and uh, walls. We get Waterloo china. We get Waterloo games for children, uh, Waterloo streets and houses, uh, Waterloo businesses, everything from pubs, which are the obvious ones, all the way through to baths and glass houses. And even ridiculous forms of what is referred to as ephemera or tat. Everything from commemorative medals and busts all the way up to ridiculous uh, forms of sort of household decoration. Oh, and even, sorry, forgive me, this is my, my personal favorite ridiculousness, uh, Waterloo Foods, right? We're all familiar with Beef Wellington, that comes as no surprise, but there is, there's a Waterloo Cherry and Waterloo Beans, Waterloo Runner Beans, uh, and various forms of Waterloo Flowers as well. So everything gets named one way or the other after this battlefield. I'm so glad you used the term tat because as a curator, I always feel really bad when I have a, a personal, emotional, negative response to an object. And I just hate the busts and and the Toby jugs. I, I just I just find them very, very tat. So I'm really glad you used that term. Look, there's a lot that's just in truly terrible taste. You know, one of my favorites in terms of just sheer what are you thinking um, is uh, when it, it's it's not directly Waterloo connected, but it is very closely uh, is is when Wellington dies and Wellington's funeral becomes the big massive thing in 1852. I ha there, there are adverts for Wellington funeral cake and Wellington funeral wine, which is about as tasteless as you can get. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's almost like having, like, Napoleon, not, sorry, not Napoleon, uh, got Napoleon on the head, uh, Nelson, the other one with an N. Um, it's almost like having Nelson pickled brandy. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Or, you know, sort of, you know, uh, you, you, something, uh, you know, anyone who's ever been in um, in a in a British sort of uh, commemorative store on the side of the Atlantic or or someplace like Fortnum and Mason's or, or things like that in the UK will be familiar with the idea of sort of coronation tea, right? Or, or um, uh, Jubilee tea or Jubilee chocolates or things like that. But imagine if, uh, you know, when Her Majesty the Queen died, there was an entire line of commemorative funeral chocolate or funeral tea. It doesn't hit quite the same way as, as Jubilee stuff or Coronation stuff does. And that's kind of what we're talking about. Beyond, beyond all the tat, Waterloo also manages to uh, get its, get reproduced in art as well, doesn't it? It really does. So one of the one of the things that's that's utterly that's really that I found fascinating that I didn't expect in the slightest, but sort of uh, that evolved as I as I wrote this and researched it. You know, if we if we think about Waterloo, our images that pop into our head, the grand paintings, right? They're Lady Elizabeth Butler's uh, Scotland Forever or the Forty Second at Quatre and things like that. Those are later achievements. Uh, Waterloo, in terms of battle painting. Uh, is is something that that kicks off a little bit later, mainly because the British don't have the same fascination with battle painting that the Continentals do. The French are brilliant at it. Napoleon recognizes good propaganda when he sees it. He shapes good propaganda when he sees it. And so the French become very, very good at that. The British have their own takes on it, but it tends to be noble sacrifices, right? So it's, it's the death of General Wolfe on the Plains of Abraham and things like that. So uh, it takes a while for uh, sort of the traditional battle paintings that we would be that we would be familiar with to kick in, but there is stuff that happens on it almost instantaneously. There are uh, Sam already mentioned the busts, right, and the Toby jugs. Yes, there are representations of of Wellington and other heroes that get uh, uh, spent out almost immediately. There are caricatures that get spent out almost immediately. But there are also paintings, but they're not quite Scotland Forever. They're more like Turner's The Field of Waterloo, which, if you've ever seen it, is very dark and apocalyptic and very much about sort of the cost of war rather than the glory of it. Or there are things like um, portraits of Wellington near the battlefield, right? Sir Thomas Lawrence does uh, does one uh, of Wellington on Copenhagen, his horse, uh, painted in the outfit he wore at the Battle of Waterloo. But even that one is sort of slightly separated from the battle. Uh, if you want the battle itself, you go the other way. You go to the stage to see the hippodramas, to see various uh, farces and displays of that. Um, and that sort of thing. But we we do see more and more artistic representations, again, shaped by the officers. Right. So probably the one of the most famous is Salter's uh, painting that's not of Waterloo. It's of the Waterloo Banquet, but it contains something like 85, excuse me, identifiable officers. All but two of whom were painted from life, mainly thanks to Wellington's backing. 
And the officers sort of take on this form of patronage to once again shape how the battle is viewed. Uh, there's another one um, that's in the Rijksmuseum, uh, uh, the, the Peenman, uh, which is not, it's technically set on the battlefield. Uh, it's called Waterloo, but it's not about the battle. It is effectively a group portrait of 25 significant men. Um, it includes British, Dutch, Belgians, and even the French, but it doesn't include a single Prussian. Once again, partially at least thanks to Wellington's uh, influence. There was a lot of talk of him buying it. Um, he was actually beaten to the, po beaten to the, the post by that one by um, the King William of Orange, um, and it's now in the Hikes Museum in Amsterdam, but it was displayed in, uh, in Hyde Park for, for over a year um, in, a, in a tent, basically. It was sort of, a, it was sort of a, a permanent circus tent that had to be heated like mad in the winter because it was not designed for an English winter in the slightest, and then uh, goes from there. And, you know, what we also begin to see is as these become pop more and more popular, we get more and more uh, prints, etchings, reproductions that, again, hang in people's houses uh, to build up that sort of popular national ownership uh, going from house to house. I feel for that because I'm also not built for an English winter. Um <laughs> So judging by the fact that Waterloo still permeates a lot of British culture now, um, all these things you've been talking about, how how much do they permeate in the culture throughout the rest of the 19th century? So there's a lot of it that, you know, we're still dealing with, right, that it, that, that we still experience that, that starts in this period. Um, you know, Waterloo Bridge, uh, which had been the Strand Bridge up until 1815, becomes Waterloo Bridge. It opens in 1817. Uh, it is Waterloo Bridge Road that begins its name to Waterloo Train Station, um, which, of course, is um, still there uh, and, and sort of, you know, and, and although it's it's been reconstructed several times, uh, Waterloo Bridge has, of course, been reconstructed several times as well. So it, it depends on where you are, right? It depends on when you are. Uh, Waterloo and the end of the Napoleonic Wars serves for an entire generation something similar to... JFK being assassinated, something to the Queen dying, something akin to 9-11, right? It's one of those moments where you remember where you were when you heard that news. You remember what you were doing. It, it shifted something. Um, and then slowly it becomes part of the history. It becomes something that you learn about in school. It becomes something that you read about in books. Uh, it becomes something that you see um, the elder generation talking about, but that you didn't experience yourself. And then it becomes even more abstract, and it becomes uh, a a a um a train station or a pub or a bridge, right? Uh, to to the point where you know there there are multiple jokes about sort of you know is uh I remember listening right after the, the Napoleon came out on film, which we're not going to talk about because Sam and I can talk about that for ages as well as 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 we already proven. Um, but one of my favorite film podcasts jokingly asked if uh, if Waterloo was the most famous battle named after a train station, right? It, it becomes that sort of reverse. It becomes that that flip. But it, it provides a way of defining Britishness. It, def it provides a way of defining us versus them that lasts much longer than memory of the battle itself does. Uh, the way I define sort of cultural memory in my book, and it's um, it's a it's a it's a way that's been used by several scholars of that of memory, um, is it's that it's that thing where you can say we or us 
even though you weren't part of it. So I use the example of a, of a barrister who was born in 1820, five years after the battle, battle was fought, who never served a day in uniform, talking about how we won Waterloo, right? It becomes part of that, that Britishness that, that seeps in. Um, and it is still there. I, I, uh, I have a piece coming out in, a, in an edited collection on um, Napoleonic memory. Uh, li literally, the emperor's Napoleonic memory, Sam, might be of interest to you. That's being edited by uh, Matilda Grieg and uh, and Nicole Cochran, uh, talking about the 75th anniversary panorama in 1890, and very much sort of talking about that shift from lived memory into cultural memory, and how and this is again something Sam that you'll be very familiar with as a, as a curator, how the the stuff that is not actually of the battle but surrounds the battle, uh, things like. Uh, pieces of art, busts, newspapers, uh, produced days, weeks, months, years after the battle, become part of the relics of the battle, become part of the relics of that memory, right? And shift that way. Wow. So it's almost, it's almost sounding a bit like Waterloo is the Victorians version of how the Blitz is to our generation. Not there, but it, it permeates culture. It permeates phrases. Um, there's always comparisons in the news, even though it was like 80 years ago. It, it feels very much that type of um, comparison. That's really a superb way to put it. Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, it, it is it is absolutely shaped that way. And again, it's another crucial. It's another moment of, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it defines Britain in a way that there's a certain portion of Brit Britain that really likes that. Right. Britain standing alone, coming out victorious against all odds, uh, despite the fact that at that point, actually at both those points, Britain had vast empires, um, although in the case of Waterloo, uh, that empire just increases from there, rather, rather, whereas in the case of the Blitz, uh, we don't talk about what happens in the 50s and 60s. I'm, I'm getting a lot of, a lot of the Waterloo sort of thing is driven by Wellington and almost his his own spin and press office to try and make him look good. Uh, so how does his funeral then affect commemoration of Waterloo? So his funeral marks uh, sort of an end point for Waterloo fundamentally as a, as a piece of lived memory, living memory. Um, you're absolutely right. He is, he is the avatar of British victory, largely thanks to his own efforts in this um, which actually presents its own fascinating set of uh, set of, of conclusions, right? Waterloo, partially because of him, becomes a anniversary for the Tories. It becomes a conservative touchstone um, because water because Wellington is not only the avatar of British victory; he's absolutely the avatar of British conservatism. Uh, it also helps, by the way, that the Napoleonic Wars are inherently a conservative victory, right? They are a triumph of. Uh, the old guard, not the, quite the ancien regime, but the old guard, the old way of doing things over uh, what is new and what is radical. Although how, how radical things are depends on what, what year you're fundamentally talking about in France. But Wellington's funeral marks sort of the end point of, of Waterloo as, as living memory. And it allows for almost everything uh, that's been going on to resurface. Right. So the tack comes back, whether it's in the form of reproductions of books, prints, new busts, new, new, new medals, new everything, 
cake and wine, snuff, you know, the panoramas go back on display. Uh, the hippodrama is uh, is uh, revived. Um, there are various other things that are brought into effect, but it fundamentally marks the end point of that. And it marks sort of the last hurrah. And part of that is Wellington's funeral itself. And part of that is also within, you know, a, a year, two years of Wellington's funeral, Britain is at war in the Crimea. And the old enemy, France, is their ally in the Crimea, right? They, it, it, it suddenly becomes in very poor taste to commemorate this victory when the, 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 the country that you had fought against is now dying beside you. But between the Crimea and Wellington's funeral, we see sort of this one-two punch that fundamentally shifts Waterloo from living commemoration to a admittedly still glorious part of Britain's past. It's, I mean, it still is, even into the 20th century. I mean, I, I remember as a kid having um, five-pound notes with Wellington and Waterloo on the back of them. And it, it's still, it, even, uh, as I said, with like the Crimea, even when it got to the First World War, there are lots of people who were saying, hang on, we're fighting with the with the French against the Germans? What? Because it just, there's always been that Anglo-French, I'm trying to think of a polite way of violence. <laughs> rivalry. Let's go with rivalry. Rivalry, yeah. <laughs> Which led to violence. <laughs> yes. Yes, for and, 900 uh, or, years. <laughs> yeah, and the rest. It's, it's that kind of, the you know, get the football chant about uh, two world wars and world, one world cup to the Germans, and there's still exactly. that will be the Prince of Waterloo and Trafalgar. So, yeah, and uh, yeah, and, and every once in a while they'll, they'll go, they'll, they'll reach all the way back to Cressy and Agincourt as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if we just let Napoleon win, then there would have been no need for the violence of the First World War. So, just saying. I'm not even I'm not even touching that one. Wow. <laughs> I am I'm nope, 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 nope. <laughs> you give me a microphone and then everyone regrets it. <laughs> I believe that's the first line of your CV, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Steering away from that little hot potato. Um, <laughs> um how complicated is the memory of Waterloo? 200 years later both more and less right so yes there there is there is less of the of that sort of inherent uh rivalry you know uh yeah you know when we get to the to the centenary in 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 1915 uh which by the way there was a massive uh celebration planned for that was sort of put on the side thanks to the first world war um not just because of the the sort of switch in sides, you know, we're we're celebrating a, a victory over our ally uh, when our allies were the enemy or are the enemy, but also because Waterloo is actually not that far from the Western Front. That portion of the Low Countries has just been basically the the, uh, the dance floor of Aries for four hundred years. Um, but uh, there, there, it's things have shifted, right? I, um, Chris brought up that two world wars, one world cup. Right, two world wars fundamentally shifted to a certain extent uh, that antipathy from the French to the Germans. Now there is absolutely still it's still there. I remember growing up with uh, you know with with yes minister and yes prime minister, and there being jokes about the Anglo-French rivalry even as the Channel Tunnel was being dug, even as Concord, a joint effort, was flying, and sort of questions about which language comes first and all of this touchy national pride. 
So there, there is, that's the sort of slightly less complicated part. But at the same time, it still exists. It's even made more complicated by things like, well, the European Union, which the United Kingdom is no longer a part of, but Belgium, the Netherlands, and France certainly are. My favorite example of, of this sort of touchiness uh, is in the, is in the run-up to the bicentenary. It was, excuse me, 2014. Uh, Belgium proposed a commemorative euro coin for Waterloo as a, you know, big event. And they're allowed to do this. It, it basically, uh, the, the way it works is there's a, um, it's a council that approves uh, not, you know, special edition euros. And France vetoed it. So Belgium went to its lawyers and the lawyers went through uh, the massive treaties, starting with Maastricht and going on from there, and came across a loophole where any country without the approval of the others can produce a commemorative coin as long as it's not of a common denomination. The result is that there is a commemorative two and a half euro coin produced by the Belgian mint for Waterloo. And I know because I own one. Um, so France vetoed the euro, but they couldn't veto the two and a half euro. Britain, of course, produces its five pound coin, which is remarkable in that it shows the, 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 the scene that they, they chose to depict is Wellington shaking hands with Blucher at La Belle Alliance uh, in a remarkable feat of sort of pro-alliance uh, at that time. And it's something that would never have happened um, even 150 years before. Right. So it, it does shift things. Um, but at the same time, you know, uh, Waterloo is still referenced, for example, in BBC uh, Six Nations advertisements. Admittedly, so is Agincourt, you know, and sort of drawing on things like that. So there is this it becomes less and more uh, complicated in general. I think it's more about um sort of slightly more joking stuff. Again, things like the Six Nations advertisements, the way sport has sort of become uh, a, a way to at least partially compensate and push away those sort of martial feelings. But at the same time, there's clearly still egos involved and it is still driving people one way or the other. And after all of that seriousness, what's this I hear about a Waterloo knocker? Okay, so it's a Wellington door knocker. I have it here, actually. Hang on. Let me, uh, let me, there we go. Okay, so in 1814, uh, after Victoria, but before Waterloo, uh, an ironmonger, um, and to give you some idea of, of how much things have changed, this ironmonger was located just off Leicester Square, uh, whereas if today you can find me an ironmonger in Leicester Square, I will be mightily impressed, uh, created this. This is the Wellington door knocker. It has, uh, as you can see, uh, and I'm, I will share a photo. I will send a photo of this that you guys can that you guys can put up on the Twitter account so people know what the hell I'm talking about here. Um, it has Wellington's fist holding his field marshal's baton, from which hangs the laurel of victory. At the bottom of which is the lion's head representing uh, Britain. And this became a hugely popular item uh, in 1814, and increasingly so in 1815 and 16 onwards, as Wellington's sort of cult of personality and hero worship elevated to an entirely new ne new level. These are actually relatively common. You can find them at a lot of antique ironmongery stores. What is much less common, in fact, I've never seen one, but I have to mention this just because it'll piss the hell out of Sam, is that while we have this preserved and we've got the, the British lion here, the original strike plate, as you can see, I just have a, have a, a regular uh, strike button here, but the original strike plate 
was the French eagle. Uh, so that every time you knocked, you emphasized and hammered home the British victory over the French eagle. Sacre blades of the laws! No! Indeed. Uh, all credit, all credits to the, to the random, um, fireplace and architectural salvage, uh, salvage shop that I reached out to when I was writing my book, asking for permission to use their images in it. And they were very kind and they let me. But I can still imagine one day sort of this guy in a, in a fireplace store somewhere in the, in the home counties getting this email from a random historian going, can I use your image of this door knocker in my book, please? <laughs> All I'm going to say without, is that without my side, Wellington wouldn't have won. So, <laughs> I mean, there is that, right? You know, I, as I, I, am, I am long been on record in case anyone is, is debating me. And I will, I will always set the record straight on this one. Well, Waterloo was an allied victory. The British wouldn't have won without the Prussians. The Prussians wouldn't have won without the British. Neither side would have won without the Dutch and the Belgians. They were all there because they all agreed to fight there together. Just don't mention it on Twitter on the 18th of June. Oh, God. I'm pretty sure my views on this are already well known, and I'm pretty sure that I've been blocked by certain people because of it. But it is what it is. Everyone knows my personal pro-German biases, so I'm going to stop there as well. Um, but uh, yeah, Luke, thanks for thanks for coming on and uh, talking to us about this. It's been really interesting. My pleasure. Uh, for those of you who are, uh, if I can, if I can self-plug for a minute, uh, for those of you uh, who are interested in in reading this, it is it has just come out in paperback um, for a much more manageable price than the hardback. But I can actually do you one better if you order through Oxford itself, oup.com. And you use the promotion code AAFLYG6. That's Alpha Alpha Foxtrot Lima Yankee Gulf 6, as in the number. You will get 30% off the paperback price, which brings it down to fundamentally a mass market paperback price in most good bookstores. And uh, I'll have a word with the powers and see if we can get it on the uh, History Hack uh, bookshop on, as well. Oh, that'd be um, amazing. Sadly. Sadly, no promotional codes on that. But uh, right. for every sale, um, you get more money than if it than if it went through a popular rainforest website. That if I mention, I'm sure I'll get sued one day. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh, we 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 don't we don't talk about Piranha Press. No. <laughs> Please don't sue me. My ex-wife has all my money. Oh no. <laughs> but uh, yeah, thank, thanks for coming on and uh, t- talking to us about Waterloo. Listen, thank you guys for having me. And and Chris, I apologize once again for making you remember that the 19th century exists. <laughs> yeah. We've we got to mention Germans. It's all good. <laughs> okay, that, that's fair enough. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash History Hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.